0: Today's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithi kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Redeemer. Um, My name is Moses Lee, and I'm the director of 1U, the campus ministry of our church. And um, we're finishing up our fourth official semester at American University, and we're so grateful uh, and privileged, really, for your continued support and partnership. Um, This morning's sermon is titled, Freedom from the Shame of Rejection. And some of you uh, may have noticed it's the same story, um, but a different passage from Gay Brown's amazing women's seminar from the retreat. Now I just want to be absolutely clear before we go anywhere with this, because um, this wasn't planned well, and it was my fault actually. Um, so I take full responsibility for that, and um, it, I hope that nobody thinks that it's we're doing this because I'm a man and a man needs to, you know, I don't know, correct or add or anything like that to what Gay already did. And in fact, her talk was really, really. I I heard the recording. I have the. Uh, I just it was amazing, and I think. I want to highlight and make sure we understand that there are multiple themes in this passage, in this story, um, and I'm actually, I'm emphasizing a slightly different theme um, that overlaps, but is, ne- is a little bit different. So, I just wanna make that clear. Um, respect Gay so much, I'm thankful for her leadership and her even mentorship, um, and just wanna make sure that we all understand <laughs> why we're doing this. Um, I am going to be preaching um, on the theme of uh, shame and rejection and freedom. And uh, what do I mean by this? Well, I don't, I'm not talking about the shame of rejection when a guy asks out a girl and he gets rejected. Sorry, (laughs) sorry boys, but you just have to go through that fire, right? The shame of rejection (laughs) I'm referring to. It's much deeper, uh, much, it's much more personal, more raw. It's the shame of being abandoned by your dad and being asked by your friends, how come they've never met him whenever they come over your house? It's the shame of being fired from your job even though you did nothing wrong. And you can't go out with your friends who happen to be your former co-workers because you're broke and jobless. It's the shame of being sexually assaulted and the people you love weren't able to protect you or never followed up with you. Or worse, they just tell you to get over it. This shame of rejection is deeply internalized, it's at war with our hearts, perhaps even for the rest of our lives. It's at war with our hearts to shape the core of our identity. It's the kind of shame that drives people out of the church, people who are once faithful and committed, because they're looking for any temporary relief they can get. It's the kind of shame that makes you want to give up and cry out, Jesus, can you just come back already? This is too hard. I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. Now, I wanna uh, pause here and distinguish a little bit the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, My counseling professor from seminary, Dr. Ed Welch, put it this way. He said, think about yourself being judged in a courtroom for a serious crime. Guilt is a feeling you get when you're standing alone before the judge, and the judge says to you, you are responsible for your sins, and you must be punished, or you must receive forgiveness. Shame, on the other hand, is when you're standing in the courtroom, but your judge isn't a single man or woman of the law, but it's your community whether that's your church, your family, your friends, your school, whatever, and your community says to you, one of three, uh, says to you rather, you don't belong here, you are unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced because one of three reasons. First one is you've committed a sin. Second is other people have violated or wronged you. Or third reason, you are associated with people who are disgraced and outcast. And in this story, we actually see two out of the three. And the context then and structure of this passage is really, really important. Uh, It's slightly different in Mark, and I don't know who's right or wrong here, but Mark has a different angle to this. Uh, For Mark, we see this one big story with one mini story in the middle. And we call this, in literary, I don't know, theory, whatever you want to call it, we call this a chiasm. You see it in poetry, too. A chiasm is, you can, it's like this uh, one part of a story and then the beginning or whatever and then the end, but then there's this middle part that's slightly different that ties the two together. You can kind of think of it like like a cheeseburger. Uh, chiasm is like a cheeseburger because you can have like the top bun and the bottom bun, but when you bite into it without anything else in the middle, it's just bread, right? It's like, why am I eating this, right? But if you have the patty in the middle, you know, just off the grill, the fat, you know, it's still bubbling <laughs> off the beef, And then you put the two pieces of bread on top and the bottom. And you could even put some lettuce in there and tomatoes, some ketchup. And then you bite into the burger. Initially, all you taste is the bun, and you're like, okay, it's just bread. But then you get into the oozing, buttery, oily beef in the middle. Then, you know, your senses just spark up, right? You're awake, you're alive and you realize the purpose of life, right? It's just so amazing, and it makes the whole thing just taste infinitely better. That's a chiasm. (laughs) And so the chiastic structure of Mark 5, 21 to 43, goes like this. Verse 21 to 24 is the top part of the bun. It's when Jairus confronts Jesus. The bottom part of the chiasm then is when the, is verse thirty-five to forty-three when the sick girl is raised from the dead. Then the meaty part in the middle is verse thirty-five to thirty—I'm sorry, twenty-five to thirty-four—and it's when the bleeding woman is healed. And that mini story in the middle is the key to understanding the whole. And so in both stories, and we, um. uh, We are told about women who are healed by Jesus. Both women are called daughter by Jesus. The length of the older woman's illness and the age of the young girl are both given as 12 years. Both stories are met by rebukes by either the disciples against Jesus or it's the mourning women against Jesus. And here's where it gets a little complicated. Both stories bring Jesus in contact with uncleanliness. The woman with the uncontrollable bleeding and the dead body of the sick girl are both ritually considered unclean. It's key here, I emphasize, ritually, not morally. But because these women were considered ritually unclean, Jewish society deemed them as shameful, dirty, and unworthy to even shake hands with. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you, you, you may have recognized already that this bleeding woman and the dead, dead, the dead girl's body, she, they were both considered unclean based on Old Testament laws. If anyone was profusely bleeding, whether from a sore or an illness, or because of the natural menstrual cycle, that person was considered unclean until the bleeding stopped. And anyone who touched these people were considered to be unclean as well. And you had to have been separated from your community until you were purified and cleansed. Now, this was not because God didn't care about sick people or women. We have to make that clear. It was for several reasons. Number one, sanitation. People back then didn't know what caused uncontrollable bleeding. And so they thought that there's that 1% chance that it could actually be a plague. And because of that, there was this reason, uh, there was this rationale of, of making sure that if there is someone with uncontrollable bleeding, that they are separated so that if in the slightest chance it's a disease, it doesn't spread. And so they had, so the priests were then uh, assigned to take care of such people and help them to get better and clean. Second reason was God wanted his covenant community to be holy or set apart, which meant that anything um, related to blood if it was, even they had the slightest chance of being um, diseased, had to have been separated. And it was both spiritual and physical in that anything unclean had to be separated from the rest of the community, at least until there was redemption, until there was restoration and cleansing. And so God established these laws precisely because he loved his people. But just as with every good thing that we humans receive from God, what do we do with it? We abuse it, right? We let the power get to our heads. And that's what the people here were doing with these sick people who were considered ritually unclean. Instead of loving them and having compassion on them and sacrificially caring for them outside of the village, they shamed them. They rejected them. They judged them. So verse 21 to 24. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please. Come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now this man, being a ruler of a synagogue, was, it says, he was an elder. He was very much like a bivocational elder in our church today. Um, But in the ancient world, not only then, that it meant that he, had, he was a man of character, knew scripture, but also meant that he was probably wealthy and powerful, at least within his village, his community. He was a man of stature. And he does something very unexpected for a man of stature. He says he falls at the feet of Jesus and he begs for help. Rich and powerful people don't do this. That's what servants are for. And from this we learn that Jairus is a desperate man. And in his desperation he's also a humble man. No shameful act even falling at the feet of a homeless rabbi, a wandering rabbi is unworthy for him. He is willing, he is he sees it as necessary anything to save his daughter why does he do this well it shows then just how much he loves his daughter how much he believes that jesus can heal him uh, heal her and the awesome thing about jesus is that he models the same love to us all in this passage he responds by loving the people so much that he's willing to adjust his schedule and go out of his way to find that one lost sheep, that little girl. And now let's read the meat of the passage. And a woman was there, verse 25, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she thought, uh, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, when the Bible here says that the woman suffered a great deal, this is, this is just one word in Greek, and the original meaning for this word is actually torment or physical suffering combined with shame. Something very close to punishment By others shaming you, we don't have a word for this in English. We don't really. There's a lot of interesting words that um, that are in Hebrew and Greek that are just infused. Like just when people say they suffer, there's a it presupposes that they're suffering because of shame. There it just happens a lot. But in English, we don't we don't really have that. And so we just think, oh, she just suffered because she was sick. No, that not only was her illness physical, rather it says that she is even suffering physically because of the words of shame she was experiencing. I mean, can you just imagine being told something about you that was so shameful that you hurt it so much that your body actually starts getting sick, starts aching. You can't get out of bed. If you were sick with something, it just gets worse. That's what's, that's what's going on here. Now, I'm a huge fanboy of Dr. Brené Brown. Um, and I really appreciate how she describes the difference between shame and guilt. For her, she says, guilt is when you say, you know, I did something bad, while shame is, I am bad. Shame has this really deep, internalized nature to it. And if this bleeding woman suffered because of the shame she experienced by her community, then we can assume then those words that she heard was also internalized. Having spent all her money on medicine and doctors and having only gotten worse, this woman's friends and family probably abandoned her. They were probably burned out. They were exhausted for having to care for her all this time. And just think about how this plays out, right, and just in, 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 our, in our lives, right? Maybe as the condition got worse, the community began, you know, just started questioning, man, why isn't she getting worse? Uh, why isn't she getting better? And what happens when people start asking that question? It, it devolves into something else. It becomes gossip and even speculation that maybe it wasn't a physical condition. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe she's cursed by God. Maybe she did something so bad that none of us know about that she's not confessing that God is punishing her for it now. I mean, that's the only explanation, right? How come all these doctors can't figure out what's wrong with her? It must be spiritual and we see actually this happening with another with another family whose son is blind and then the disciples ask what sins the parents commit for the son to be born this way we don't know if that's what happened but we can certainly assume that as a possibility because that's how shame based cultures work so as time passed Her friends and family probably told her, I can't be seen around you anymore. People might think I'm unclean too. I'm sorry, but I have to go. Maybe she was a widow, an older woman. And as everyone in her life left, her children may have even told her, I'm sorry, Mom, but we can't come by anymore. People are talking. They say God doesn't love you. And anyone who comes near you also gets cursed. You know, it's affecting our job prospects. This, this will be the last time we visit. You know, we'll stop by sometime and drop off some food, but we can't be seen around you anymore. And as the years went by, they stopped visiting. She had no one left. And Every time she walked through the village, people would yell at her if she came too close. Stay away from my children. Don't come near me. And following the adults, the children probably taunted her, threw rocks at her. Because they might have thought that they were doing God's will by punishing her. This is how self-righteous communities, you know, treat shameful rejects. And it might even be that she learned to live by herself in the hills, coming down occasionally to look for food in the village dump. Her community, living under this snare of sin and shame, rejected her and labeled her as subhuman, unworthy. It sounds crazy, but we all kind of know what that's like. And it's crazier because we actually see the Gospel talking about different episodes, different stories of this actually happening. And we think, yeah, I've seen that. I've experienced that. Or at least you imagined it. You know, when you ask people that have been sexually assaulted to describe their feelings, the most common answers are that they are numb, that they feel dirty, and they feel worthless. I was a criminology major at University of Maryland and I remember just doing this, reading all these case studies after case studies and hearing about these victims, the first thing they do when they get to the hospital is, where, the first thing they ask is, where's a shower? And oftentimes, I think this is why also assault victims self-mutilate because they want to feel something they want to be reminded that they are not a shell of something that they used to be they want to be reminded that they are living and breathing that they feel that they're fully human and as i read this passage and this this word this phrase here i can't help but wonder if this woman felt something similar about herself because of the evil things her community said and did to her And so just imagine this scene. There's this huge crowd following Jesus, and everyone is just focused on Him because they expect Him, they want to see Him do another miracle. I mean, even, if, even today's day, if someone was going around like raising people from the dead and, and giving sight to the blind, I, I, we would follow. We, won't, we want to see, right? And so they're just all following Him. And no one would have noticed this old, unclean, bleeding woman that everyone thought was cursed and too dirty to be close to, just wiggling and, 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 and following them. Wiggling through the crowd, right? Making everyone around her unclean. And it shows how absolutely desperate she is in wanting to get healed. There's this re- reoccurring theme. She's so desperate to be made clean, to be made whole. And she knows that if, if she intentionally, knowingly, got other people ritually unclean, she knows she could be executed for it. So for her to go to Jesus this way, touching people left and right to get to Jesus, she is literally making all these people unclean, having, adding to all her reasons why she should now be executed. There is, again, this sense of desperateness from these people, Jairus, and now this woman. You can almost hear the voice of her heart, right? What is she thinking? What is she feeling for her to risk death this way? I imagine her saying something like, this is my only chance. If Jesus can't heal me, I have no other hope. I have no other reason to live. I just imagine her just in tears, really just broken at this thought that if this doesn't work, I'm going to die anyway. If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. This has to work. I just know it. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. In verse 27, we see three verbs, just three verbs. It says, she heard, she came, and she touched. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to act on what we hear about the gospel. And as soon as she does this, 12 years of shame and frustration, all of it just vanished. Gone. verse 30 and at once jesus realized that power had gone out of him he turned around in the crowd and asked who touched my clothes you see the people crowding against you the disciples answered and yet you can ask who touched me but jesus kept looking around to see who had done it then the woman knowing what had happened to her came and fell at his feet trembling with fear told him the whole truth and when power leaves Jesus here, I personally don't think that Jesus doesn't know what's going on. Some people debate that Jesus didn't know. Uh, I, I think Jesus knew. And I think he does this because he, I think that Jesus never forces people to confess their sins. People never, Jesus never forces someone to say, believe in me. It, it's, it's, there is this more, there's a sense of like warm invi- invitation in that. And you see how he asked the question so that the woman is convicted to confess on her own will. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Remember, she's trembling with fear, not just because she knows that she just made Jesus unclean, but because she made the whole crowd unclean. She knows that Jesus has every right to kill her, to execute her for that. And so she doesn't just confess bits and pieces. She confesses everything. She tells him that she was unclean, that touching him made them both unclean, that she's sorry, that she doesn't deserve God's grace in her life. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan preacher um, from the 18th century, he once wrote that um, we need to be careful not to draw people to Jesus by what he can offer us. We need to be careful not to make the gifts look greater than the giver, meaning people can falsely be assured of their salvation because they appreciate the gifts of forgiveness, love, affirmation even, etc., More than God Himself. He said, We need to show our people the beauty of Christ and teach them to fall in love with Christ Himself. The gifts are just the benefits, the consequences, really, of following and loving Jesus. So, how do we do this? Well, verse 34, I think, is a wonderful example. Here we see Jesus' character shining. His beauty shines. He's loving, compassionate, patient. He heals us from our uncleanliness. He covers us from our shame. He doesn't take advantage of our insecurities. He reassures us. Don't worry about what everyone else is thinking about you right now. You're not crazy. You're not dirty. You are healed. You can rest now. Go in peace and live in freedom. There is no one else in the world like this, who is as caring, loving, patient, and forgiving. We are Christians, not because of the gospel benefits, but because of the gospel hero. We are Christians, not because of the gospel benefits, but because of the gospel hero. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Send him home. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And so let's look at what Jesus says here in verse 36 He says, Don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus is reminding Jairus now the meat of the story. Remember what I did for that bleeding woman on the way here. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Keep following me. Don't be afraid. Notice that up until now, Jairus' faith was never really shaken. It was really never tested. We know this because he really, never questioned this Jesus' ability to heal. He was desperate. He, it showed true demonstration of faith. He even stuck around when the bleeding woman was healed, all because he was motivated to cure his daughter, to find healing for his daughter. But when the object of his love was no more, his faith was shaken. What's the point of staying committed to Christ if my daughter is already dead? What's the point of staying committed to Christ if I no longer have X, Y, and Z? And from this, we learn that what ultimately keeps us motivated to keep going in the midst of trials, to staying committed in following Christ even when the temptation of shame is knocking at the door of our hearts, is ultimately dependent not on our ability to trust, but on the object of our love itself. What we love and desire most doesn't necessarily give us the strength, but it's the object of what we love and desire most that gives us the strength to face these impossible odds. So why does Jesus respond to the death of Jairus' daughter with, don't be afraid, just believe? It's an odd response and an odd way of comforting someone who who just lost a loved one. But again, if we continue with the narrative, we learn that Jesus was preparing Jairus for what was going to happen next. Again, this middle story explains the beginning and the end. Verse 38 to 40. And when they, came home to the, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Stop there. It so says they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus and through guilt by association they were laughing at Jairus. After all, Jesus was Jairus's guest. And the inevitable challenge of following Jesus is shame, the shame of being rejected by your community, by your coworkers, by your family. But I want to highlight the simple command, do not fear. This is the most repeated command in the Bible. I I don't know if you recognize this. It's not believe in the Lord your God. It's not love your God. It's not love your neighbor. It's do not fear. And why did Jesus intentionally tell Jairus right before this moment not to be afraid? Because to trust in Jesus in the midst of everyone mocking and laughing at us requires tremendous vulnerability. Now it's starting to make sense. Jairus can hear Jesus' words now in his heart. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe in me. I know how hard it can be to follow me. I know how shameful it must be to be rejected by the people that you're supposed to lead, by the people that you thought were there to support you and care for you. I know how painful that shame must be. But I purposely healed that woman on our way here to show you that your ultimate, your ultimate object of desire, hope, and love should be me, not your daughter. Commit your life to me, and I will show you power that can even raise the dead to life do you believe this? I read a conversation um, in a um, book uh, by Brene Brown where um, she imagined, I I don't remember if she imagined it or if it actually happened, but she's talking to her therapist and I thought, wow, if Jairus' life here was just put on pause, it was like one of those moments in the, the Matrix movies, where like, he's just like, boom, and in, the, in the room of the architect, everything's white and everything just like pauses. You're like beyond space and time, and you can just reflect on what was, what's happening, but you're not really there. Everything's like paused, right? And if I, I was just thinking about this, and if Jairus' life was put on pause and he was just like, like beamed up somewhere to a therapist's office, and he could just talk about what he's feeling, I imagine the conversation having gone something like this. Jairus begins by saying, I hate... How vulnerability makes me feel. And his therapist responds, What does it feel like? Like I'm coming out of my skin. Like I need to fix whatever's happening and make it better. And if you can't, then I feel like punching someone in the face. And do you? No, of course not. So what do you do? Well, I clean the house. I eat peanut butter. I blame people. I make everything around me perfect control whatever I can. And when do you feel most vulnerable? When I'm scared. When I'm in fear. When I'm anxious and unsure of how things might go for me. Or if I'm having a difficult conversation. And it makes me feel uncomfortable. if I'm trying something new and doing something that makes me feel uncomfortable, I don't know what to do. Verse 40. Jesus put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was. He took the father by the hand, I took the daughter, I'm sorry, by the hand and said to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Now, I know how extremely difficult sometimes it is to stop thinking about the pain and fear of shameful rejection. It doesn't seem like that pain will ever go away. It just drives us insane. But there is a way to get out of that that loop, that vortex. as we see more and more of how extreme Jesus' shameful rejection on the cross really was, we won't dwell so much on our own fear of shameful rejection. This is what I mean. I mean, let's say um, you were at 7-Eleven on your way home, and you got a drink, and you thought, oh, you know what? $5 for a scratch-off lottery, might as well, right? I got a $5 bill right here. Boom. You scratch it off and you're like, oh my goodness, I won five bucks, right? This is awesome. And so you just go home and, then, and when you get home, first thing you tell your wife is, hey honey, guess what I won? And as you're pulling out your $5 lottery ticket, your wife pulls out her mega million lottery ticket and says, honey, guess what? And then you're like, wait, what? We won $20 million. What are you gonna do with your $5 ticket? You just drop it. You don't, you, don't even, you don't even remember the past 30 minutes of your life. Like, that $5 lottery ticket is just like thrown on the ground, and you just run to your wife, and you're just screaming and so happy, whatever. And like, that $5 lottery ticket, you don't even mention to your wife for the rest of your life, right? It's just gone. Who cares, right? Because your wife won the mega million. The greatness of her winning will completely dominate your thoughts of your, of your $5 winning, you see? In a similar way, at first, our sense of rejection and failure and, and, and fear, all of our shame, feels so overwhelming, it's the only thing that we can think about. But now we see that Jesus is suffering was deeper than our own. Jesus was made ritually unclean when this woman touched her, when she touched that little girl. She should, he should have been ritually cleansed. That woman should have been punished for knowingly made all these people unclean. What if? What if she was actually? Why did she actually have the plague? Right? That's very socially irresponsible of her. But, instead of punishing her, he takes on her shame, her uncleanliness. He takes on her punishment. He takes on our punishment. He takes on our uncleanliness. And he dies for them on the cross. And when we watch these movies of Jesus, of the Gospels, you always see Jesus hanging on the cross, and he always he has this towel, you know, around here, right? In, in real life, he would have hung there naked. And we don't show that in the movies because we don't want our sensitive consciences to be tainted or whatever, but in real life, he was there naked, fully exposed to experience shame, on a physical and spiritual level on, and never seen before. You know, it's one thing to be a little kid, right? And to be caught stealing candy from a candy store, and then the candy store owner or your parents are like, oh, you shouldn't have done that, you know, we'll pay for it, and then you get, you know, you get, I don't know, disciplined for it, right? And you feel ashamed for that, and you're like, oh man, I should never do that again. But if you're, but if you're like an adult and you do that, right? you can get arrested, Now like, you can get fined. And depending on the severity of the theft, you could go to jail for a long time. And the shame you experience is that much greater. Now if you're the president of the United States and you steal something, even a little bit of candy from a candy store, like, there is that much more shame because of your stature. Because of the way the world, because of who you are. And so for Jesus, the king of the universe, to experience shame in this way was infinitely more than we could ever imagine because of his stature, because of who he is. And now we see that Jesus' suffering was that much deeper than our own. We were only able to see our own shortcomings and rejection by our friends, our coworkers, our family. But now we see Jesus was rejected by the whole world. And through the cross, we can now experience forgiveness. And this is crucial because forgiveness helps us to take off our masks that we put on because of our shame. Jesus embraced humanity in the fullest sense, showing us there is nothing bad in being human. Nothing to be ashamed of in being a person in need of others. Nothing to be ashamed of for failing to live up to the standards of the world. Nothing to be ashamed of for even failing to live up to God's standards. Jesus' life and death, a life, death, and resurrection confirm what authentic humanity is supposed to be, what God intended creation to be. Jesus unmasks and frees us from our enslaved imaginations. And as we grow in our understanding of forgiveness offered to us through the gospel, God will change our hearts so that we can forgive others who have rejected us. Amen? Whether that be our family, our friends, or our church, whoever, as we see how our sins and shame was carried on the cross by Jesus, and that he still forgave us in spite of our sins, Our forgiveness frees us to forgive those who have shamed us. Once we realize how powerful the shame, rejection Jesus went through for us was, our fears won't completely disappear. I'll be, you know, let's be honest, right? It'll always sort of be there. But it will become less and less significant. It will make a huge difference. Just like that $5 winning versus the 20 million dollar rating. Who cares about the five dollars, right? And when thoughts of Jesus, uh, Jesus is suffering for us and his resurrection dominate our thoughts, our thoughts of shame will seem that much less and less significant. And when thoughts of Jesus grab our attention, our own fear of shameful rejection, shortcomings, and suffering become less controlling. That is why Hebrews twelve two says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who absorbed all the shame in the world and then announced its reign was over. Fix your eyes on Jesus, whenever you go, um, whenever, wherever you go, so that we can now begin to bear the shame of others, so that they too can see Jesus through us. As we li- live in this tension of freedom and bearing the shame of others, that in that tension. Is where we experience freedom. That's really key. We think that it's just living in the, living in free living in forgiveness, living in cleanliness, whatever. We think, oh, that's freedom. No. On the flip side, we have to be then living with living by bearing the shame of others. As we live in that tension that both and we experience freedom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, with just so much fear, um, so much shame, so much uh, just pain from our past and from the ways that people have rejected us, from this foolish, things that we've done, or maybe even the, maybe we were just stuck in uncontrollable circumstances and and shame, and we experienced shame as a result. God, we thank you that your son came to bear our shame, to bear our sins, to take away our, our uncleanliness. And in addition to that, we thank you that we can now have the joy of bearing other people's shame so that we can be like Christ, not just in his victory, but in his suffering as well. We thank you that it's in that tension that we can truly experience what it's to be like Christ and to be in freedom. Lord, give us the courage And to take off our masks, to live in that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.